Well, good morning, friends. Good morning, good morning. My name is Ken. If I've never met you, I'm the Connections Pastor here. And, you know, I absolutely love a Thanksgiving. I feel like it's one of those holidays. It's just, it just feels like it's for all the right reasons. We gather together with family or friends, and we focus on the things that we're thankful for, which God just throughout Scripture talks to us about having an attitude of gratitude and a thankful mind. And so I hope that wherever you were this week, that you were able to just enjoy the company of others and also to be in a space where you can just reflect on how good our God is. I chose to wear this shirt today um, because it's the last Sunday in November, and a couple of years ago, I was about to come up to do the announcements. I was wearing this shirt, and right before I walked up here, a gal behind me grabbed my sh- me by the shirt, and she said, hey, you look like a pumpkin spice latte. <laughs> I thought, all right, so I figured I'd wear it one more time before I break out the Christmas sweaters next week. Anyhow, uh, today, uh, the message today is titled The Other Side, and we're going to talk about going to the other side, which is something we see Jesus doing in this passage that we'll be looking at. And what do we mean by going to the other side when we talk about that? Sometimes it's about going to those people that we're uncomfortable maybe engaging with. Perhaps it's a change in geography, going somewhere maybe we're not completely comfortable being. Uh, It might be connecting with people that are different from us that we might hesitate to share our faith with. Uh, Maybe it's someone that speaks a different language or that has a different educational or professional or cultural or religious background than us. You know, maybe the idea of going to the other side makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable. I'm actually guessing that it made the disciples feel uncomfortable. Well, about five years ago, so my family and I moved here about seven or eight years ago. Both of my kids were hockey players, uh, but I grew up in Southern California. And shortly after I turned 50 years old, I decided to take up adult league ice hockey. And I started to play ice hockey for the first time in my life. So quite naturally, I joined the NHL, the Novice Hockey League. So, and we do call it the NHL, Uh, but there's about 20 guys I've been playing hockey with for over five years, and we play almost every Wednesday night, and after we finish up on Wednesday night, a lot of the guys will head down to a bar called Legends, which is in South Moorhead. Now, we play at the Cullen Hockey Center, which is up near the high school, and I live pretty close to the high school. So for the last four or five years, I've been saying to myself, you know, I should really go down to legends with these guys and hang out and get to know them a little bit better. But I had some pretty good excuses not to do that. One was it was out of my way. Home was two minutes away, and this place was like 15 minutes down, 15 minutes back. Another thing was I worked on Thursday mornings. I generally get up pretty early, and I knew that this would keep me up another hour to two hours later than I wanted to be up. And quite candidly, another thought that went through my mind was, what would you all think if you saw me sitting at a bar with a bunch of guys who were having drinks? And so for five years, I didn't go to Legends. Uh, But two weeks ago, we started off our adult league men's hockey, and I decided that I was going to go to Legends with these guys for the very first time. And you know what happened within that one hour that I sat there? I was blown away. I got to know more about who these guys are, 
who their families are, what they do for a living, what they care about over the course of this, just this one hour sitting around a table with them than I had in five years of sitting next to them on a hockey bench or in the locker room. And so we're starting to build relationships, and it was just really cool. And that was one way that I went to the other side. Now today, we're going to take a look at, at Mark uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Uh, if you want to follow along in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1006. If you want to follow along in that companion guide that we hand out, uh, it's on page 63. I'm going to be teaching out of the New International Version in the companion guide. It's in the English Standard Version, so that's the nuance, or that's why it's a little bit different. So let's take a look. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 1, it says, they, talking about the disciples and Jesus, went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Now, I actually wanted to set this up before diving into it. You know, where do we pick up this story? You know, so over the course of the last 24 hours, the last three weeks uh, that we've been preaching have taken place in a 24-hour period. So three weeks ago, uh, Seth taught on the parable of the sower. And then two weeks ago, Kent talked on the parable of the lampstand, the parable of the mustard seed, and the parable of the seed. And then last week, Dale talked about the calming of the storm. All of that takes place in just the 24 hours before these guys set out on this journey across the lake. And so the last thing we heard last week was these guys, they get into a boat to go to the other side of the lake, a place where none of them would want to go because it's a foreign land with foreign people that they're not too fond of. They get in the boat, about halfway across the lake, a big storm rises up, right? And they're terrified. And then uh, they have to wake Jesus up. The water's pouring in over the bow. They have to shake Jesus awake. And like, don't you even care? We're about to die. We're about to drown. Jesus wakes up. He calms the storm. He rebukes them. And then the next morning, they arrive on the shore over on this far side of the lake, and that's where we pick up the story. And so when we look at this, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Now, there's actually been some dispute over where this event actually took place. In different manuscripts, they list different locations. But Gerasene uh, refers to the whole region. If you look at this map up there, in the middle, there's three ships. The one on the far left is where the storm on the sea would have happened. And then on the kind of the far east side of the lake, about halfway down where that orange arrow is pointing, is, the, is a place called Gergesa. It was a small town. It's modern-day Kersey. And the reason that we believe that that is where this event happened is that's the only area on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee that matches the description of the geography where this event took place. There was a steep hillside that led right down to the lake. There were caves and tombs nearby. And so most likely this happened in Gergesa. Here's a photo from our time in Israel. So we were actually standing in Capernaum taking photos of the Sea of Galilee. And that area you can see across the lake there is probably about where this event took place. So it wasn't very far. It was only about a seven-mile uh, boat ride across. Not terribly far at all. So they could see this place every day that the weather was clear. But they had no desire to go over there. Because going to the other side meant that they would be with people that they didn't like. All right, verse 2, Mark 5, verse 2. When Jesus got out of the boat, notice that it doesn't say anything about the disciples in this passage getting out of the boat. We're not sure if they ever got out of the boat or not. 
You know, maybe, maybe it was because they didn't want to go to this foreign land. Maybe it's because they were still seasick from the events of the night before. Uh, but they, apparently, we never read whether or not they got out of the boat. And then what happens? A man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This is the first guy they see as a man with an impure spirit. Notice you know, or, or this man that Jesus encounters immediately, the phrase here, impure spirit, means that he was either demonized or demon-possessed. And I wonder if the disciples are thinking this was a bad idea. We get over here and the very first person we see is demon-possessed. Not only is he demon-possessed, but he's running around in the tomb, so he's touching dead things, which would have been considered vile to the, to the Jewish people. They weren't allowed to touch anything that was dead or be around dead people. And so they would have considered this guy uh, not worthy of their time. You know, Jesus is going to someone that the disciples don't feel comfortable around. Someone they don't even see as valuable. But the deal is, God does see him as valuable. In the church, we talk a lot, or we don't talk a lot about demon possession. But in the book of Mark, he, he talks about the subject on several occasions. A couple of commentaries that I had been reading in preparation for this message quoted C.S. Lewis from his book, The Screwtape Letters, which is actually a book that one of our adult learning groups has been going through on Sunday morning here at our church. And here's what C.S. Lewis says. It says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils or the demons or Satan. One is to disbelieve in their existence. They're not even, they're, they don't exist at all. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased, they, the demons, themselves are equally pleased by both errors. You see, there's two extremes that please Satan. One is disbelief in him and his demons. And the other is an obsessive curiosity that leads down to the path of pursuing Satan. You see, if you don't believe that there's a deceiver who is trying to unravel our lives or to make us apathetic to injustice or who wants to distance us from God, we won't take our pursuit of Jesus and His ways seriously or purposefully and we'll fall praise, prey to Satan's schemes. The flip side, though, is if we have an unhealthy interest in the occult, in evil practices, we risk being pulled into demonic practices and ways of thinking. We start listening to the lies of Satan, lies that you are unloved or unworthy, or lies that other people are unlovable or unworthy and that they're just an object. Back in the Old Testament, before they gone into the Promised Land, uh, Moses writes this in Deuteronomy chapter 18, God, these are the words of God, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate their detestable ways, the, the detestable ways of the nation there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, I hope that's not an issue with any of us, who practices divination or sorcery interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist who, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these same detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. God says, don't mess with this stuff. Keep your distance. You know, Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, don't conform to the patterns of this world, 
but be renewed or have the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, there's a real danger in dabbling in the demonic. Our minds are being transformed every day, either for God's good or for Satan's evil. So don't walk around with your head in the sand, but don't get so interested in this sort of stuff that you get sucked down the wormhole. Well, back to the Gospel of Mark. The next three verses describe the condition of this demonized man that we've just met. Verse 3, this man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. So this, this guy is choosing or is being forced to live among the dead. And he's so powerful that he can't even be contained. Now, leave, living in tombs would have made him unclean to the Jewish people and probably just uncorked to everybody else, right? Because of the Jewish faith, the disciples would have never gotten near this guy, let alone touched him. And then we read in verse 4, For he, talking about this man, had often been chained hand and foot, but, before, or, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. If you're a Marvel fan, perhaps Thanos or Hulk come to mind, right? This guy was unchainable. Nobody could subdue him. Now, both of those individuals are fictional characters, but we do hear about people with extraordinary strength and supernatural events. Perhaps a car falls on a child and all of a sudden somebody who's never lifted a car in their life is, is able, through the adrenaline that's coursing through their veins, able to lift that car off that child. But this was a real man who lived during this time, albeit a madman. Now, thinking about his ability to break chains, have you ever tried to open a jar and, and it got so painful as you're trying to twist it that your hand hurts so you stop? And then you go and you grab a towel. And with the towel, you're able to open that jar because you've removed the source of pain, right? I half wonder if one of the strategies of these demons was to make this guy not be able to feel pain. And that was one of the reasons he was able to break chains and break free. Not only was he of super strength, but apparently he didn't feel pain. And as we go on to read this, we might find out that there's some more things that lead us to that understanding. But you know, sometimes demons numb our pain. And sometimes, perhaps with the help of demons, we find things to numb our pain. Maybe it's eating or drinking or shopping or gossiping. We start to talk about all the things that's wrong with them so we feel better about ourselves or drugs. I mean, there's lots of ways that we numb our pain, and Satan wants us to do that. Well, verse 5 says this, continuing on about the man. It says, Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. This guy was just walking around screaming out and cutting himself with stones. I feel so sorry for this guy. I've got to imagine that his life was just terrible. You know, these demons were succeeding at hurting this man's mind but also his body. I can't imagine him having any relationships with others, as most people would have been terrified of him. I, I doubt he was able to carry on a conversation. I, might, I imagine his life would have been lonely and fearful and desperate and angry. But at the tail end of that 
thing. It says that he cut himself, himself with stones. Now, I want to just stop there for a moment because I realize that over the course of the last couple decades, cutting has become a real issue for people. It's one way that people numb their pain. And if you are a person that is either tempted to cut or are struggling with cutting, I just want you to know that you have a God in heaven who loves you so much that you were created in the image of God and that he sent his only son to die on a cross for you? Do you have people in your life that love you and care for you? I pray that if that's a struggle, that you'd seek help and lean on God and know that the cutting's not going to help. It's not going to make it better. And I know it's a battle. It's not easy. And I pray that God would give you victory over that. And then verse 6 says, when he saw Jesus, when he, talking about the demon, saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of them. Now, he wasn't running over to Jesus to worship him. He, this demon was running over to Jesus because he recognized the power and authority of God. And he wanted to beg him not to do what he was about to do. In some ways, as we look at the Gospel of Mark and we see these different demons, like they recognize God more quickly or Jesus more quickly as God than a lot of us do. Verse 7 says this, he, talking about the demon-possessed man, he shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In the name of God, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you evil and impure spirit. Again, I'm wondering what the disciples are thinking. Hey, Jesus, maybe we should just get out of here. This wasn't such a hot idea. The demons know exactly who Jesus is, but that doesn't mean they're going to be saved. You know, I've got some friends that have said, well, I believe in God. James chapter 2, verse 19 says, You believe in God, even the demons do that and they shudder. You see, it's not enough to believe in God. Jesus asks him, he never says, well, he says, believe in me, but he says, come follow me. Jesus invites us into a relationship. He invites us to surrender our lives and to drop our ways and to pick up his ways and to follow him and to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. And so believing in God alone is not enough. It's a matter of surrendering your life to him and following him and starting a relationship with him. In the New Living Translation, instead of saying, the verse up there says, what do you want with me, Jesus? The demon says in the New Living Translation, why are you interfering with me? Now, most people that I know are not demon-possessed. Although there were times when I had toddlers in the grocery line at the checkout stand where I wondered if they weren't demon-possessed. But most people are not demon-possessed. But... Like this demon-possessed man, many people in society are screaming at the church. They're screaming at God and at Christian values, and they're saying, why are you interfering with me? Get out of my life. You see, when we reject Jesus and his authority, we're in essence putting ourselves on the same pathway as the demons. 
We must all ask ourselves, will I choose my ways and my will, or will I choose God's way and His will? Will I choose Christ's loving leadership over my life, forgiving me, healing me, cleansing me from sin, and providing me with true freedom? The answers to those two questions have eternal consequences. And then verse 9 goes on. Then Jesus asked the guy, he says, what is your name? I actually love that Jesus stops and pauses and says, what is your name? I think our names are so important. People feel known when you know other people's names. It's important to remember one another's names, to look them in the eye. And so Jesus asked him, what's your name? But here's the response he gets. And it's not the guy that responds, it's the demons. It says, my name is Legion. He replied, for we are many. You see, legion was the term that was used uh, in the Roman army. A legion was anywhere from 3,000 to 6,000 soldiers. And so in essence, this guy is saying, I am literally have thousands of demons in me. Not just one tormenting, but thousands and thousands of demons when he says, my name is Legion. And verse 10 says, and he begged, he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. The demons begged Jesus. You see, the demons' goal was to control the humans that they inhabit, but Jesus' goal was to give people freedom from sin and Satan's control. And that is what Jesus is about to do for this man. In verse 11, we read that a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. I just imagine these pigs are hanging out, they're eating some food, minding their own business. And the, the, actually, the, the presence of pigs uh, definitely indicates that these guys are now on the other side of the lake because the Jewish people and the Levitical law weren't allowed to touch pigs, own pigs, or eat pigs. So if pigs were around, they were definitely on the other side of the lake. They were definitely in a foreign land. In verse 12, the demons beg Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Now, one question I asked was like, why would Jesus kill these pigs? But Jesus didn't kill the pigs. He allowed the demons to go into the pigs, and the demons killed the pigs. But I do think there's something that's important to note here, and that that is that God looks at you and I he looks at every single individual, every one person, and says, you are more valuable to me than a whole herd of pigs. He's happy to give away a herd of pigs for a soul that will follow him. Can you imagine this scene, though? Hooves pounding, pigs squealing and grunting. They stampede down the bank. There's dust everywhere, and then they hit the water with the splash. And then there's this gurgling of gargled squeals and noise happening as they're wrestling in the water. And then all of a sudden, there's an eerie silence as the last pig succumbs to drowning. Well, this event got me to wondering, can pigs swim? And so I did what all of you would do. I Googled it, right? Can pigs swim? 
Pigs, in fact, are actually very good swimmers. Was surprised to hear. My wife says they have built-in floating devices called flubber. But pigs were able to swim. So either after entering the water off of this steep bank, because of the terrain, they were unable to get back out of the water and they drowned, or because their minds are demon-possessed, they don't know what they're doing, and they all drown on the spot. Verse 14, those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. Can you imagine these pig herders? I thought, oh my gosh, this is the worst day ever. These guys are like, crud, I'm going to lose my job for sure. We just lost all the pigs. This is not a good situation. And so these guys, they run to town and they start telling people. They're like, you wouldn't believe what just happened out there next to the lake. Our 2,000 pigs just stampeded off the lake into the water. But what was weird was before that happened, there was this heated conversation between that crazy guy, you know, the guy named Legion, the guy we all know that hangs out in the tombs, and some guy who looked Jewish. And then all of a sudden, the pigs went crazy. It was the strangest thing I'd ever seen. So the people of the town hear the story, and they do what many of us might do. They go ambulance chasing. I don't know about you, but when I see a bunch of fire trucks parked near a building or I see a bunch of police cars gathered, I I start to wonder what's going on. And so they all want to see what happened out at the lake. And after, and so verse 15 says, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid Not only did 2,000 pigs plummet to their death in the lake, now they see that crazy guy, that guy named Legion, sitting at the feet of Jesus, dressed like a normal person, looking like he's in his right mind, just listening to what he's saying. And they were afraid. And really, the Gentiles' fear of Jesus wasn't much different than the fear the demons had of Jesus. Have you ever witnessed something you couldn't explain and it makes you afraid? Not only did a couple of thousand pigs run down into the water for unexplainable reasons and drown, now this guy who had been off his rocker for years, a guy who'd been a danger to others and to himself, seems to be of his right mind. How do we know if we're safe if this guy with the power to defeat these demons sticks around? And all the people were afraid. And the news spread, verse 16. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and they told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. The people pleaded with the de- the people pleaded just like the demons had back in verse ten for Jesus to leave them. Back where the demons had begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area, these people are pleading just like that. You know, the unknown scares us. You know, what sort of thoughts would you have had if you had witnessed this event and had no context for who Jesus was? Or even if you knew who Jesus was and you saw this happen, what would you think? I mean, imagine one day you're out at Pelican Lake and you see this interaction. There's this crazy guy talking to somebody who seems fairly sane. They're over on the hilly side of the lake, and all of a sudden, a herd of pigs or a herd of cattle or a bunch of chickens run down the side, 
get in the water and they all drown? Would you be freaking out just a little bit? Wondering, what should I do? Is this person safe? Or would you be thinking, hey, I want to hang out with this guy? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I want to be anywhere near this guy. So they say, please leave. If you stick around, are more pigs going to die? Is this power for good? Is it for evil? They say, please leave. And so Jesus left. And at this point, I got to believe the disciples are thinking, well, Lord, that didn't go well. I mean, think about it. We came to the other side of the lake. On the way, there's this big storm, which should have been sign enough as reason to turn back and not go. Then when we get there, the first guy we meet is absolutely psycho and he lives among tombs. And then when you actually heal him, a bunch of pigs die and everybody in town is ticked off at us and they're afraid. This thing sounds like an epic fail, God. Verse 18. Jesus agreed to leave, and it says as Jesus was getting in the boat. It says that Jesus got in the boat, but it never says anything about the disciples getting back in the boat. Perhaps they never got out of the boat. We're not sure. And then it goes on to say, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people, and then tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. It seems harsh. Why didn't Jesus let him come along? It feels brutal. You just saved my life. You've altered my future. You've given me freedom and a clear mind. And I want to go with you. But Jesus says, no. Maybe you've had some seasons where you felt like God was not giving you what you wanted. Clarity in a decision. Healing from an illness. Restoration of a relationship. We're just His presence during a desperate time. Sometimes we feel hugely disappointed when we don't sense that God is giving us what we want. But let me provide you with a different possible perspective. In this passage, Jesus says, go home to your own people. The New Living Translation actually translates this verse, no, go home to your family. The word used for home in this passage is the Greek word oikos, which can be translated as home or household or family or spiritual household. Now, we don't know how long this man was demon-possessed. What if it was five years, which would have felt like an eternity, right? But imagine that five years earlier, he was married and he had 2.5 children living at home. And one was five years old. And for the last five years, this family's had to survive on their own. They've had to provide for themselves. They've had to try to explain why dad is not around and what's going on with dad. And all of a sudden, that afternoon, that one-time five-year-old girl is now 10 years old, and she sees dad walking down the street in the distance, and he's dressed normal, and he looks like he's in his right mind, and she starts to squeal to mom, mommy, mommy, daddy's home. I mean, we don't know. We don't know what the situation was. And a family that had been in disarray is now repaired and made whole again. Now, this is just obviously speculation, but the idea is that God knows the whole story, 
and he knows what's best for us. Uh, author and pastor Tim Keller, who passed away a year or two ago, once wrote this. He said, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. You see, God knows what's best for us. And in this case, this man staying in his hometown was best for him and best for the kingdom. We just don't know, but we trust that Jesus did. Then, in essence, Jesus commissions this man. Let's look at verse 19 again. This is what Jesus says to this guy. He says, go home to your own people. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. This happens to be the very first time in the gospel of Mark that Jesus is encouraging someone to share what the Lord has done for them. Generally, he says just the opposite. Don't tell anybody what I did for you. But all of his healings prior to this, all of his miracles prior to this, were were in Jewish territory. We're on the west side of the lake. And he knew that the people on that side of the lake were expecting a Messiah that was much different than the one that had actually arrived. They were expecting a military ruler. They were expecting someone that would overthrow the government. He knew that he would not only come up against government opposition there, but that he would come up against religious opposition. And so he told everybody else not to tell. But this guy, he says, tell what God has done for you. Go ahead and tell them. Verse 20. So the man went away and began to tell the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for them, for him. And and all the people were amazed. Now, Decapolis actually means 10 cities. Deca, 10, Apolis City. So like we say Minneapolis, it's mini city. I don't know, something like that, right? Uh, Minneapolis, so Decapolis. So there were 10 towns on the south and east side of the Sea of Galilee, and this guy apparently started to go to all of these towns sharing what Jesus had done for him. Now, the Christian church generally identifies Paul as the first apostle to reach the Gentiles, but this man, formerly known as Legion, was spreading the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles years before Paul ever did. And we read, and all the people were amazed. In another portion of the New Testament, we read that numerous people from the Decapolis became Christ followers. So Jesus took his disciples to the other side, a place where they did not want to go, to a people that they probably did not think were worthy of saving. And when they get there, the results are only one man having his life changed. In terms of what they've seen, the feeding of 5,000, the calming of storms, and the healing of many, one demon-possessed man being exercised of evil spirits and having his mind attuned to the Lord may have seemed like a little bit of a failure. But what it was was the start of a movement. It was the start of seeds being planted throughout that land so that people could come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, so that they might be hope, find hope and be redeemed and saved and have their lives restored. So I want to end with these three questions. How do you measure ministry success? I mean, it's really easy to think of a guy like Nick Hall who preaches to thousands of people at one time and sees hundreds of people convert in a moment. But very, 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 very few of us are called to that, Right? We connect with people one-on-one, 
Or maybe you lead a company or an organization or a team and you connect with more people than that. But how do you think Jesus defines ministry success? I think it's simply just by being faithful with what you have, what God has given you. If he's forgiven you, if he's given you new life, and he's wired you a certain way, Jesus simply says, be faithful with what you have. But he does want us to get out of our comfort zone. He does want us to share with other people this good news of Jesus. He wants other people to have a saving relationship with him. I think God measures our ministry success just as our faithfulness to him with what we've been given. Then who's God placed in your life? Friends, coworkers, teammates, Maybe it's people that you share a hobby with. Maybe it's family. Reality is we all have different people in our lives. And what might it look for you, like for you to go to the other side? What might it look for you to get out of your comfort zone just a little bit, to head to Legends and hang out with a few guys for a couple hours to get there to know their story? What might God be calling you to do? How might he be saying, I want you to go to the other side to share what I've done for you with others. Let's pray. Uh, Father, there is just beauty in this story. The fact that you cared enough about one man. Uh, you made this trip. You faced a storm. You faced just things that were most of us would think are absolutely bizarre, would be completely out of our comfort zone. And we know that you're God and we're not. We know that you know how things are going to turn out and we don't. Uh, yet you have placed people in our lives that you love and that you want to know your love. And so God, I pray that you would give us the courage uh, that we need, uh, that your Holy Spirit would prompt us, whether it's to send a text or go have a meal or grab a cup of coffee or to ask a few more questions but that you would open those doors so that we can have gospel conversations with others so that they can know that in this dark world that is filled with so many issues and problems and troubles, that there is hope, that there is victory, that you, Lord, know how everything turns out and that you love them and want a relationship with them and you want them to rest easy in who you are. And even in the face of cancer, even in the face of death, even in the face of broken marriages or broken families, Lord, that we would know that we belong to your family and that we are loved by you and that you can redeem all things and make all things new. I pray that we'd receive that, Lord. I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.